0: Let's jump into our message this morning. We are continuing our series on the son of God using some clips from the movie, the son of God to talk about who was this man named Jesus? Who was he really? So we're looking at the facts. We report you decide, I guess, you know, you have to at some point own your faith for yourself. It's not enough for you to believe what your parents taught you. Your pastor tells you you've got to wrestle with this. You've got to own it. So who was Jesus really? That's the most important question in recorded history. There's no more important question for you to answer in your life. It's bigger than who will you marry. It's bigger than what are you going to do after high school. It's bigger than how are you going to plan for your retirement? What kind of house are you going to buy? Who are you going to make as friends? The most important question for all of us is who do you think Jesus really is? Your response to that question will with 100% accuracy determine the condition of the rest of your life and the afterlife. That's why it's so important. There's no other question you can answer. No other question you can respond to that carries as much weight. And so my, my thesis here is if that question is that important, shouldn't we really think through this pretty carefully? Shouldn't we really treat that question very seriously and try and mine down to the very bottom of it? This week, we're actually going to be looking at three short stories. We're going to really hone in on, on Jesus and Peter. So let me read to you the text for this morning. And as soon as I'm done reading the text, We're going to turn our attention to the screen and going to kind of watch how Hollywood, as soon as we're done reading the text, we're going to see how Hollywood portrays how this might have happened. Okay, so uh, let's read the text together this morning from Luke, the gospel of Luke, chapter five. Uh, Quick question, Luke, um, what was his occupation? He was a doctor. So you get a lot of real clinical details, especially in his account of the crucifixion. He has a very unique perspective that he brings to his writing. Some of the things he writes about are included in the other gospels. Some of them are unique to Luke's perspective. Um, Luke also wrote another book of the New Testament. You know which one that was? The book, or some people call it the Gospel of Acts because there's a little bit of the story of Jesus in there. So it's kind of a continuation. And he writes in in, in Acts that he actually, not only did he write from some first-hand experience, he did a lot of investigative journalism. Actually, says he went to eyewitnesses and he very carefully Chronicled as much to make sure that he could corroborate all of the details. So we we have a high degree of trust that what this man is writing is accurate. So let's read this this morning, uh, Luke chapter five verses four through eleven. I'll read it to you. You can listen as we read. When he had finished speaking, he, meaning Jesus, said to Simon, and I want you to watch how this guy's name changes in this passage. Okay? He says to Simon, Now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied. We worked hard all last night and I didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish that they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat. And soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When, now his name changes a little bit here. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. For he was awestruck by the number of fish that they had caught as were the others with them his partners James and John the sons of Ze- sons of Zebedee were also amazed James and John sons of Zebedee real quick they sound familiar to you they were two of whom two of the 12 yeah it's interesting come some of his co-workers came along for the ride Jesus replied to Simon don't be afraid from now on you'll be fishing for people and as soon as they landed they left yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute they left everything and they followed Jesus Let's turn our attention now. We're going to show you a clip from the movie, The Son of God. And so this is kind of based on this is their interpretation of what might have happened dramatically with this. Just kind of gives you another layer and dimension to process this through. Let's check it out. Have the jews hey julie that's actually a uh, pilot from last week there do you have the um do you have the one with uh peter in it because that would you know hollywood i mean they really they really changed that story up in that case i mean they put they put pilot out there <laughs> well i mean you know there's artistic license right there's artistic, there's artistic license that would really, that would really change it. Julie, do you need an, another second to grab that one? No problem, no worries. Well, let's dive in here a second. I'll watch her for the thumbs up. Let's dive in here for a second. So you've got this story where Peter's out doing what he does for an occupation, and what was Peter's occupation? He was a fisherman, which means he didn't catch fish just to eat them for himself. We have to keep this in mind. You know, a lot of, there's there's not many of us today that when we go fishing. We actually are, are going to turn around and sell them. We're, we're, we're catching them for ourselves or catching them for leash. You have to understand he caught fish in order to sell them. And we have an indication that he was probably pretty good at it, had a pretty good business. Where do we where do you think we get that idea from? Where do we draw the context conclusion? that He was a pretty successful fisherman from this story. What do you see in the story? Very good. He had there was other fishermen and other boats that were under his leadership, weren't there? And when he got a whole lot of fish there, he called out and some of his other partners came. So he at least was successful enough to have some employees. This was not just him working as an independent contractor. He had other people that worked for him. And so he was he was pretty he was probably pretty successful. But when Jesus steps into the scene here, he steps into the aftermath of a night that wasn't very successful. In fact, he he comes back in the morning and, you know, Peter fished at night. He comes back in the morning and he and and he he goes to hop into the boat. And Peter says, we've been fishing all night. And and how much had they caught? Nothing. But Jesus says, let's go out and try this again. And Peter's probably thinking, man, we don't fish in the daytime. There's no fish biting tonight. This is ridiculous. But because you say so, we'll give this a shot. Jesus hops in the boat. And however it happened, we don't know what happened. um, But Jesus was somehow able to make it so that they caught so many fish that how many fish? The nets began to actually tear. And so they have to call the other boat for help. They pulled, they get all the stuff in on shore. And Peter has this really odd reaction. What does he say to Jesus? He doesn't say thank you. He doesn't say help with the fish. He says to leave me. Why? Because I'm a sinner. Now, do you see anywhere in the story where Jesus gave a message on sin? He wasn't talking on the topic of sin. I don't see him bringing it up anywhere. Now, truth be told, they could have had a conversation out in the boat that we don't know about. I guess it's possible. But it certainly doesn't seem, I think that that if that was an important detail that God wanted us to know, that would be in there. Jesus mentions nothing to him about sin. Peter gets back, and in the midst of what is probably the best economic day in the history of his business, there's money all over the beach. He says, depart from me, not because I don't like you, but because I'm too sinful for you to be around me. Wow, interesting. So what does this tell us? about jesus what does this tell us about us there's actually two stories right after that we normally separate and treat all these stories separately we're going to treat them together as one unit today but it's it's interesting if you read the first four chapters of luke what you'll see is that you know what israel was looking for someone to come and save them they were looking for a savior but they were looking for a really narrow definition of what salvation was salvation meant take over the government Give us a new king. Don't make us to have to live as colonial life anymore. Restore us to our former glory. They were looking for a savior who would just transform one little element of their lives. But what you get when you read the first four chapters, you got like the angel saying to Mary, listen, there is a savior coming and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So here's kind of the drama that set at the beginning of Luke. People are looking for a savior and the savior's coming, but he's going to be so much more than what they're looking for. He's not coming just to change the government. He's coming to change history forever. And the big idea that I want to leave with you this morning is this. Here's what we learn about Jesus. Jesus is the savior of the world. But the salvation that Jesus brings is wider, deeper, and more magnificent than anything you could ever expect. Let me read that to you again. Big idea is that Jesus is, in fact, the savior of the world. The salvation that Jesus brings is wider, deeper, and more magnificent than anything you could ever expect. They were expecting a political leader who would lead an armed revolt and give them a new nation. But Jesus came to do so much more. I wonder if you realize how multidimensional salvation really is to you and to me. He didn't just come to give you a smile. He didn't just come to give you access to heaven. Jesus came to bring you a salvation. If you choose to accept it, that transforms you psychologically, sociologically, and spiritually to change you and to transform and rebuild and reconstruct your entire identity. That's what he came to do. And it starts right here with Peter. And just before I launch into this, Julie, how are, how are we looking? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways, thumbs, thumbs down. No problem. I just got to tell you, I so appreciate faithful Julie Burke. She is here every single stinking week and has like five hands back there on stuff. It's OK. You can go rent the movie and, and, and see it for yourself. It's it's Jesus playing in the water and fish come. It's pretty it's pretty interesting. He like puts his finger and you hear this cool music in the fish come. Maybe how it happened, we don't know. Here's what's going on. I was studying for this, and I read something that there's a pastor in New York that I, I read a good, a good amount of his stuff when I study because he, he, he intimidates me. He's so stinking brilliant. And so I, I read his stuff, and um, there's a guy, Tim Keller, that wrote about a little part of what's going on with Peter here that I found really interesting. There's three things that we learn about um, salvation in this passage. Three things salvation transforms Um, And the first thing in your notes, number one, salvation transforms our relationship to ourselves. It's interesting. Translation, salvation transforms our relationship to ourselves. Well, pastor, where are you gathering that from? Well, let me just read a couple of those verses we just saw one more time. Luke five, verses eight through 11. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. He was awestruck by the number of fish that he had caught as were the others around him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also made. Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. Tim Keller used a phrase here that I'm going to borrow this morning. Give him credit for it because it's his phrase. He said, Peter is having what he calls a self-quake. Not an earthquake, but a self-quake. There's something before our very eyes in this passage where Peter's whole identity, his whole psychology about himself is completely changing in just a matter of a few moments. And he says, um, you know, after this incident in the, in, in the gospel, see, up to this point, his name was Simon, up to this story. After this story, and for the rest of his stories, his name is now Peter. And in the middle of this story, his name is Simon Peter. So in, up to this point, he's known as Simon. In the middle of the story, he becomes Simon Peter. And after this, he's Peter. You're seeing a self-quake. You're seeing the fault lines of his life cause some seismic activity, so much so that his very identity, even his name, changes. Who he is is changing through salvation and acceptance from Jesus. You, 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 you've got to see that there's a transformation going on. The salvation of Jesus always creates a self-quake. It doesn't just forgive you of your sins and gets you a little closer to God. It completely reconstructs your psychology and your identity that's what it's doing to peter that's what it's done for me salvation me accepting jesus in my life didn't just forgive me of my sins it is reconstructing the whole way i think about me and my whole identity and it's the most magnificent journey you could ever imagine there's three stages of a self-quake this isn't in your notes we'll talk about this real briefly there's kind of three stages of a self-quake that we see in this story and the first stage is i see myself this is the rough one First stage of a self-quake, I see myself as worse than I've ever seen myself before. Hey, that's a good one. (laughs) The first stage of a self-quake is that I see myself as worse than I've ever seen myself before. It happens in the story. Peter gets out of the boat on where he should be just absolutely ecstatic, slapping high fives around, right? They've had the best day fishing they've probably ever had. Most money, most sales in one day ever. And his response, I'm a sinner, I can't I'm not even good enough to be around this guy. It's really odd. He's been around majesty, he's been around absolute holiness, absolute purity. And by contrast, he can only be recognizing how bad he really is. Anytime you're around the superlative, anytime you're around the best the first thing that happens is we start feeling a little bit worse about ourselves. You know, when you're around somebody that's just incredibly handsome or extremely beautiful, perfect skin, perfect hair, you go to the beach, you know, and you see these guys walking down there, you know, they just have all the, you know, this, this is everything's just, you know, just the six eight pack and I've got the keg and it just, you know, it just... <laughs> All of a sudden, you start sucking in your gut and putting your shirt back on and everything else, right? You know, but when you're around, it's not like anybody teaches us to do this. When you're around superlative things, when you're around the best, when you're around the greatest, it makes us a little more insecure and a little more cognizant of our flaws, on our weaknesses. Whenever I hear a great preacher preach, there's sometimes I just like close my notes. I'm just like I'm never preaching again. Why would I? That's the best. When I go to the gym to work out, I try and go when there's nobody else back in the free weights area. Because I'll go back there and I'll do what feels like a good workout to me. But then there's these guys that come and have watermelons for arms. And in fact, if they're all in there working out, I intentionally don't go back to that area. I don't know why. I kind of do now. Because it makes me feel like I am nothing, even though what I'm doing might be good for me. It might be accomplishment for me. All I feel like is like a wimp and I can't do anything. You know, they're they're picking up with one hand the weights that takes me like my entire body and a helper to move, you know. (laughs) This happens with all of us. And it makes us very uncomfortable. It's why sometimes when you're walking into a store or into a place of business or working alongside somebody who doesn't share the same relationship with Jesus that you do, sometimes that kindness, that joy, that compassion, that holiness that you try and live through and you walk through makes other people feel uncomfortable and they can't put their finger on it. It's because they're around somebody who is a way they'd like to be that they aren't. And all they can do is feel like, get away from me. I'm sinful. And that's the reaction we really see here with Peter. He says, in this moment, I have been around majesty. I've been around greatness. And the more that I'm around him, the more of my own sludge I'm aware of. And I have to tell you that true salvation experiences, guys, they begin that way. When we're shown how pure and wonderful Jesus is, there's a discomfort that comes in our own heart. How could I possibly be around him? In fact, you know, it's not this part that we can bypass. It's even woven into some of the songs we sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Do you understand what that word means? And we sing it so beautifully, but do you understand we're saying by contrast? What's so amazing is that you, as I look at your grace, I can only see myself as a wretch. Now, God doesn't want us to get stuck there because many of us just get stuck there. There's other songs, too, that include the phrases that you would save such a worm as I. Because how can I get close to God and not be more aware of his holiness and my lack of holiness, his righteousness and my lack of righteousness, his strength and my weakness? We're just paradoxes. We're at the opposite end of the spectrum. And Peter's reaction is sometimes our reaction. The closer we get to Jesus. The closer we want to approach God, we, we're aware of our own filth and our own sludge. And I don't want to suggest to you that it's unhealthy to feel that's it's very, very, very healthy because it makes us aware that we need a savior because the second step of a self-quake is not getting stuck there. We don't just come to a place where we see ourselves as worse than we've ever seen ourselves. The second step of a self-quake is then I am immediately affirmed more deeply than I've ever been affirmed before. You know, I was talking to somebody this morning, um, you know, somebody who I really esteem in the areas of teaching, someone who I try and sit under their teaching as much as they can. And, you know, I have a good relationship with this individual. And, and um, you know, I just said, you know, I want to I want to hear some more of your teaching and be there when you're teaching, because I get a lot from us. And you got to understand, I was just confessing. I said, it is intimidating for you to ever sit under my teaching, <laughs> you know, because I'm like, you're the one I really want to listen to. And immediately he said, you know, I get a lot from your teaching. And right in that moment, where I'm kind of feeling like, man, I'm just not anything Compared to you, he turns right around and affirms me more deeply than I've ever been affirmed. Do you see that that happens with Peter? Peter says to Jesus, please leave me. I'm too sinful to be around you. And Jesus says, You know what? I don't want to leave you. In fact, I want you to come with me. You know what he was saying? He wasn't saying, Hey, come for a couple courses. Come and let's, you know, come to this next seminar. You can carry my bags. You know, what he was really saying, he said, I want you to come and be part of my family. I want you to live where I live, eat by my side on the table. I want you to sleep where I sleep. I want I want you to be a co-proprietor with me in this thing. And isn't that just the remarkable thing about finding Jesus? We come to him broken and messed up and trying to give him all the excuses to exclude us. And right after that, he affirms us, your salvation is a lifting up. Experience Salvation is not a woe is me, hand wringing, nose in the ground, feeling terrible. Salvation is where Jesus comes into our lives and he lifts us up. And he affirms us more deeply than we've ever been affirmed before. He says to Peter, I don't just want you to to come with me for a little while. I want you to come and be part of my family. When the salvation of Jesus comes into your life, you see yourself as more wicked and sinful than you've ever dared believe. And yet you sense you're more valued and loved and affirmed than you ever dared hope. At the very same time. And then the third thing that happens in a self-quake. So the first thing that happens is we see ourselves as worse than we've ever seen ourselves. But then we see ourselves as affirmed and more valuable than we've ever seen. And then this crazy third thing happens. Then Jesus becomes your highest priority. Even more than work. Jesus becomes your highest priority. When you have a self-quake. Jesus displaces the role that work plays in your identity. And he becomes your highest priority. It's interesting. What did Jesus say to Peter? He says, come and follow me, and I'll do what? I will make you fishers of men. I'll teach you to to fish for men from now on. Which is an interesting phrase to begin with. But what did they have to do in order to do this? What was the prereq for them to follow Jesus? They had to leave. Interesting word, everything. What did they leave behind? They left family, okay? Left jobs, the boat, there's stuff, There's an important one we're missing here. What else? The, okay, wife, food. What else? I heard it. Fish, Do you understand what's happening here? They caught the biggest caught, think my, they caught the biggest catch ever. They had the most money they've ever earned in a day, laying there, and they leave it there and follow Jesus. Yikes. Now what is he saying that we all need to quit our jobs and leave our paychecks no 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 it's an issue of priority because they didn't leave fishing they had a new fishing we are slaves to work and many of us need freedom from that and it's not you hitting the lottery or getting that big check from the billionaire in your family you didn't know you had Jesus came to set you free from the tyranny of work in a different way. He liberates Peter. Because many of us are so much a slave to work, you cannot work, You cannot put work aside to sleep. You cannot put work aside to, to work on your marriage. You cannot put work aside to work on your parenting. You cannot put work aside to take rest for yourself. You cannot put work aside to grow spiritually. Work is your boss and you are its slave. But what Jesus said is when I come in your life and I bring transformation to your psychology. I exchange one kind of fishing for another kind of fishing. I exchange one kind of wealth for another kind of wealth. When you get saved, those of you that work in the medical field, it's not like he asked you to leave medicine, but you learn that there's a different kind of medicine and healing beyond just the medicine and healing you work in. There's a different kind of selling and salesmanship that goes along with Christianity than just the stuff you're currently selling. There's a different kind of accounting that goes along with Christianity. And there's and what happens with 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 Peter was he said, I'm now going to exchange one kind of work for another kind of work. And in so doing, he was set free from it. And when you realize. That there is now some bigger mission for you. You can then go back and do your very same job and enjoy it because it's no longer your Lord. You're that's not the end in and of itself. Because it's a lousy place, if that's the only thing in your identity, you're going to be up and down and up and down and up and down for the rest of your life until you feel like you can stop. What Jesus says is when I come into your life and I bring salvation, I become your highest priority and set you free from the tyranny of work, having to drive your whole value system your whole existence, and that's what they were willing to do. So you've got this incredible way that salvation not only transformed, not only transformed just the way that, you know, the way that he thought in general, but in, in the way it transforms his whole psychology. Second thing that we see in the next story is that salvation. Number two, salvation transforms our relationships with others. It transforms our relationships with others. Right after this story ends, the very next verse picks up with this. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. When the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you're willing, you can heal me and you can make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him, which is the the turning point in the story that we have to come back to. He reached out and touched him. You didn't do that. You did not touch a leper. You didn't do that. I am willing, he said, be healed. Then instantly the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster. And vast crowds came to hear him preach and be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew the wilderness for prayer couple words about leprosy real quick some of you who have studied the bible for years you know not a lot about leprosy those of you in the medical field know even more than that let me just give just kind of a few basic things and then show how this ties into the story the word leprosy in the bible referred to a pretty wide range today it's more of a narrow definition in the bible it was a wide range of disfiguring and debilitating skin disorders and skin diseases many of which were contagious. The Old Testament says, if you get leprosy, you are ceremonially unclean. And so the lepers, when they got the disease, but as a result, when, le- when you contracted leprosy, you became immediately a social outcast. You were banished from the city. You weren't allowed to be there. Cut off from all relationships and people, except for really other lepers. They were not allowed into cities. They weren't allowed into towns. So where did they work? They couldn't work. So they were economically impoverished. So they were emotionally, socially, financially cut off from everybody. No one was even allowed to physically touch them. You know, even in prison. I was watching a documentary this week about Marianne Jones, the former track athlete, and her six months in prison, which wasn't so bad until she got in a scrum with another one of her cellmates, and they put her in a place that was really difficult. You know where it was? In the shoe. Solitary confinement. It wasn't enough for her to be in jail. They said, will you really punish you? We're going to cut you off from all human contact. God wired us to need that. And here are these lepers living outside of all human contact. in Israel, on top of that, they were, they were ceremonially unclean, according to the Old Testament. They weren't allowed into the temple. They were never allowed in the presence of God. So they're cut off spiritually. From everybody. When you and I see the word leper, we almost immediately think of mainly the physical condition. That's not the main point of the story. Think of their emotional condition. Think of their financial condition. Think of their social condition, their spiritual conditions. Not just the disfiguring of the body. That was bad. But what compounded it was that they were isolated from, from everybody. So I want you to notice something. Jesus touches him. Why? Why did Jesus touch him? He hadn't been touched. Okay. We might say, well, he touched him to physically heal him. Mm -mm. You know, Jesus doesn't have to touch somebody to physically heal them, does he? When the man was paralyzed, does he touch him? He says, no, get up, roll up your mat and walk. Never touched him. There's another case where the centurion, this man who was in charge of everybody comes and says, hey, my servant is sick back home. Jesus says, go home. He's healed. Servant's healed. Jesus wasn't even physically present and healed him. So Jesus didn't have to physically touch the leper to heal him. He just could have said you're healed and he could have been healed. So why did Jesus, what is his real concern here? He's healing him, not just physically. He's healing him emotionally. He's healing him socially. In him touching the leper, he's saying, you've been outside of the fellowship of this community, but I'm bringing you back in. You're not even allowed to have contact these people in the town because the leper comes into the town to see Jesus. He wasn't even allowed to be there. He must have made a mad rush just to, all or nothing. This is my best shot. He runs into the town to see Jesus. Jesus touches him and the moment that he does layers and layers and layers and years of emotional hurt. Societal bias, prejudice, distancing, it ends right then and there. Jesus touches this person that, listen, nobody else was able to touch and nobody else wanted to touch or was willing to touch. That person's unclean. He touches them. He brings him in. He brings him in. And that's why he says, you know what? Go take your sacrifice. You go show the priest. You go ahead now, because I've touched you, you can now be in the presence of God. Go show, go make, you know, go make the sacrifice you need to do because one touch from Jesus. I don't care if church hasn't accepted you. Other Christians have laughed you off. One touch from Jesus is all you need to have access to the presence of God. That's all that it needs to be. I don't care What taints your past? I don't care what your background or your history is. I don't care what your personal struggles are, what sins that you've dealt with and wrestled with. And still, it doesn't matter to Jesus. He doesn't want you to live as an outsider anymore. He was the friend of sinners. He's the one who touched them. And he didn't become unclean. He made them clean. So what does this mean? It's the beginning of something you'll see over and over again, especially in Luke. You'll see something really strange. I want you to listen to this. There is a disproportionate number of what the world would call losers, what the world would call outcasts, who the world considers unimportant and what the world considers defiled that Jesus is always reaching out to and touching and pulling into community and very often even making them leaders. Aren't we to be about the same thing? Touching people. To the presence of Jesus that other people hit, you're a loser. You're an outsider. You're an outcast. You don't belong. You're too much of a mess for us to deal with. We want people in the finished product. Absolutely not. That's not who Jesus was. Thank God, because I'd have been that one. Look, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago when I had to step out of ministry because of some real serious sin issues in my life and I had to get healthy. Nobody wanted to touch me. All my Christian pastor friends, with the exception of about two, one of them being Pastor George. George. Who I didn't even know at the time, but just encouraged me through phone calls and emails, heard of my story and just said, Hey, I believe in you and you've got a future and work hard. Mm. I was the one they didn't want to touch. No one wanted to deal with what my issues were at that time. Of course, then when I get back on my feet and everything starts going again, then everybody wants to come back around and, Hey, you want to speak of this? You want to speak of that. No, thank you, man. You weren't there for me when I was down. (laughs) And I got to get over that, but you know. But shouldn't there be some transformation in my heart to have grace for people just like me? Shouldn't the gospel sink down to an instinct level with me and with you? Or my first reaction now is, an, oh, my goodness, I heard about. But, man, how can we help? How can we help? Doesn't mean, we change the facts. OK, you stumbled. You fell down. I didn't need someone to tell me that I didn't stumble. I knew that I stumbled. I didn't need someone to let me off easy. I need someone to drill down and make sure that this never happened again. That's hard work. But the Bible says a righteous man falls seven times, but he gets That's back right. up. He gets back up. So the Bible says, don't sin, but if you do, get back up and get back in line. That's kind of the whole message on sin in a phrase. Don't sin, but if you do, get back up and get going again. And that's what Jesus did. He went around finding people that everybody else had written off, and he grabs them and he brings them back into relationship. There's one, you know, there's one other thing in this story that's pretty cool is, um, you know, Jesus touches him and he says, now you've been made clean. You know, when you touched an unclean person, you know what the Bible says up to this point? If a clean person touched an an, an unclean person, the clean person was now unclean. It's not what happened here. Jesus says, "I." Here, Jesus flipped the whole script. Watch what happens now. Now, a clean person touches an unclean person. The unclean person becomes clean. (laughs) Did you get this? Jesus says, "I'll take your uncleanness, take it to the cross, and die for it. You get my cleanness. I don't care what has stained your life." Just let him touch you and get his cleanness. Pastor, that's not fair. No kidding. And nothing fair about it. That's why it's good news. I don't want what's fair. What's fair means I die. There's nothing fair about an innocent man dying for me and the guilty man living free. But Jesus isn't bound by rules of fairness. He just wants us to accept the truth and follow him. So it changes. Salvation doesn't just change our relationship with ourselves. You understand when you get saved, it brings you back into relationship with community again. Jesus reaches us and he pulls us back in. Number three, last point. Salvation transforms our relationship to God. We'll close on this point. Then the next story, right after this. One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in Galilee and Judea as well as from... I love that phrase. It seemed that these men just somehow showed up all the time. Somehow. And the Lord's healing power was strong with Jesus. And someday we're going to come back and talk about that verse. Another translation says, and the spirit of God was present to heal the sick. And I've always wondered, God, what, what conditions make your presence to heal the sick present? And is there anything we do that makes you absent? Like, what, like, what's the deal there? I don't know the answer to that, so we can't preach on it today. But verse 18, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd, who were mostly these men that just showed up anywhere. Um. Oh, man, I thought of something to say there. I need to write that down. So they went up on the roof and took off some, some tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat into the crowd right in front of Jesus. It's just a shame when religious people feel seats and unchurched people can't come in and get to Jesus. Because... Anyway, seeing their... no, that doesn't apply here. That's for another church at another time that I'll talk to. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to that man, your young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, which is a scary verse, isn't it? But I didn't say it. Oh, but you thought it. And he heard it. So he asked them, why did you question this in your hearts? It's easier. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I'll prove to you that son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat and went home, praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe. And they praised God, exclaiming, we've seen amazing things today. Isn't that cool? I mean, my dream is to be able to leave church regularly and say, we saw some amazing things today. That's the God of the Bible. We saw some amazing things today. We saw some amazing things today. How could you be sinful and accepted at the same moment? Here's what happens. They bring this paralyzed man to the house. They can't get him into the house. You have to understand back, and I can't go into all this today, but back in the day, they had staircases up on the roof. It was not uncommon for people to go up on their roofs, okay? They had staircases to get up on top of the roof. However... This paralyzed man had friends and they couldn't get him into Jesus. They knew he needed to be healed because he was paralyzed and wanted him to be able to walk. So they walk up on the roof and they tear up this dude's roof. If you go home today and your neighbor's up there just tearing your roof off your house. Understand these people are not just thrilled and moved by this experience. This is not like common. This is not like polite neighborly behavior. It's just as offensive back then. It was hard to build a roof back then. And they're tearing the joker's roof apart and lowering a man down in the middle of the room. And Jesus looks at him and says something they weren't expecting. What were they expecting and wanting Jesus to do? Yeah, heal the guy so he can get up and walk. And does Jesus heal him first? What does he say? Your sins are forgiven. You need to sense the disappointment in the room. There's two groups of people that are extremely perplexed by this. The friends up on the roof. They tear up their friend's roof. They're already thinking we might get sued. But if this guy gets up and walk, they might let us off. They lower this joker down, interrupt this church service, lower him in there. And they're saying, all right, he's going to make him walk. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine what they're thinking up there on the roof? Well, that's that's very nice, Jesus. But uh, that's not what we need in this situation. We need a different kind of power here. Um, that's not at all we want. We're up here now. Now we're vulnerable. And now everybody down there is already they're mad at you and they're mad at us. And that's not what we need here. And all the Pharisees in the room are like, this man is speaking blasphemy. He said, all your sins are forgiven. Nobody can forgive sins except God. Jesus was making a pretty clear statement here. And I'm wondering if you catch what it is. You know, if I, you know, if I'm standing over here and, you know, uh, you know, Diana punches Mike in the nose and I go over and I say to Mike, Mike, I would just I would like to forgive Diana of her sin for hitting you in the nose, you'd be like, you know, that's crazy, pastor. You can't forgive. The only person who is allowed to forgive Diana for hitting me in the nose is me. Here's what Jesus is saying. I forgive all this person's sins. And you know what? The Pharisees were right because, at, you know, at that point, the only person who can forgive a sin is the person who was sinned against. The victim, you know what Jesus is saying when he says all your sins are forgiven, he's saying all your sins are really against me. When you lie, you're breaking my law, when you mistreat somebody that I created, you're breaking my law. And when Jesus saying, when he's saying all your sins are forgiven, he's saying all sins are against me and I am God. That's what he's saying. And that perplexed. That perplexed the Pharisees. They did not like that, but Jesus was making a very clear statement. You need to hear this. When we accept Jesus as salvation, it restores our relationship to God. It transforms our relationship to God in the clearest possible way. He's saying all sins are and it's something almost as important as this. There's another thing that Jesus is saying here. He's saying this man's physical condition is not his biggest problem. Think about that. He's saying to everybody, you know, first things first, your sins are forgiven. Everybody else is like, if you're going to do something, at least heal the guy. He's saying, no, 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 no. Your physical condition is nothing compared to your spiritual condition. What good would it be if I get this man up and he can walk and he has never had his sins forgiven? He can walk and then spend eternity separated from me in hell. He's saying the most important thing he said, your physical condition brought you to me. But your spiritual condition is what really matters. You know, all the time we ask God, God, why don't you fix my finances, fix my job, fix my family, give me this change that. You know, what's most important is your spiritual condition. Those things aren't unimportant. But first things first, what point would it be for God to give you financial blessing and peaceful peace in your family and this and that and the other thing? Without really having your heart, because then what we'll think is that God's OK with us because we're getting all these blessings. We'll kind of live in this mild form of self-deceit and could spend eternity separated from him and be shocked when we get there. And what he's really saying is what's most important. What's most important is your heart. Physical suffering can't destroy you. It brought me it brought to me, but it's not your fundamental problem. So salvation transforms us Psychologically. It transforms us sociologically in our relationship with others, but it's all based on whether you're transformed spiritually. Are you put right with God through Jesus? That's absolutely the key to everything. It's only when we're spiritually right, when we have all these other things we want from him. Why aren't you helping me with this? I'm sick. I have a problem. I have financial problems. Jesus says none of those things are like this until you get this right. Nothing else can be put right. So he says with one phrase, you're forgiven. Because you see what happened when Jesus went to the cross, he took on himself what he removed from that man. When Jesus went to the cross, he gave up his mobility and took on immobility. And nailed him and they made him immobile so that that other man could be mobile again. When the leper comes into town, Jesus accepts him. Why? Because Jesus was crucified out of town, outside the city gate. He became an outcast so this guy could become an insider. That's what he's doing. He says, only because I died, because I was paralyzed so you can get up and walk. I was cast out so you could be brought in. I became unclean. I was forsaken by my father so you could be brought in. Do you see that? If only you could see that. See the dimensions that God wants to save us. That's how he wants to save you, friend. He wants to transform you psychologically in the way you look at yourself. In the way that you relate to others. In the way that you relate to God. Two things I see from this story. One is that I have to trust Jesus for the long term, not just the short term, because in the short term, Jesus sometimes asks us to do some crazy things that make no sense without following him for a long time. see He asked Peter to leave all that stuff there. And if Peter was just following Jesus for two weeks, it wouldn't have made sense. He wasn't with; he wouldn't have been with him long enough to see how this all panned out. There's going to be days that following Jesus is difficult and it makes you raise questions when you're praying for things that don't seem to come to pass in the time that you need them to. It gets tough. When you pray for sick people in your life and they don't get better. When you're mistreated, when you put in for when you put in for a job that you want and God gives it to you and then they tell you, hey, this promotion you get comes with a pay decrease. That doesn't make sense, It doesn't I'm giving you real stories from people that are sitting in this room. You have to follow Jesus for the long haul. The other thing I learned is that it takes a long time for the gospel to sink to an instinct level. In other words, when our first reaction is the right reaction said to someone the other day, they're like, well, I'm sorry, I lost it. That was a bad first reaction for me. I said, well, as long as your last reaction is the right reaction. (laughs) But you know where I want to get? I want to get to the point where my first instinct, my first instinct is right. You know, first time Jesus calls Peter when he's in the boat and he comes ashore, Peter says, get away from me. But you know that they met in a similar circumstance later on after Jesus was crucified and buried and rose from the dead. Peter had gone back to fishing because he hadn't had any other instruction in a while. He's out one day fishing and he hears a voice call from the shore. Throw your nets out on the other side. Throw your nets out on the other side. And he does. And he immediately recognizes it's Jesus. And you know what? You know what he says? You know what he does? He doesn't say get away from me. He jumps out of the boat and like a madman runs to Jesus. Because at this point, the gospel has now sunk down to an instinct level. He's like, the next time I hear Jesus' voice, I'm not going to try and distance myself. I'm going to run right to him. Those of us that have been following Jesus for some time, this is our challenge. Has the gospel really sunk to an instinct level for you? Or now your response? God has so transformed you that you don't have to, like, make the wrong reaction, go home, feel convicted about it, pray, go ask for. where you just start living more instinctively the way that Jesus wants us to live. It's beautiful when you see that change. That means the gospel sunk down beyond just your thoughts and behavior patterns into the very real desires that drive us. Isn't it nice when compassion is your first instinct, when forgiveness is your first instinct, when grace and mercy is your first instinct, when confidence and courage is your first instinct rather than beating yourself up two days later and saying, oh, I missed an opportunity three days ago. It can sink to that level. Just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to accept Jesus, but we got that video clip ready now that we've talked about all this. Let's check out. Let's check out. There's a cool little phrase at the end of this that is a great way for us to close this morning. Julie and Paul, you guys are awesome. Thank you for working on that for us. Here we go. Check it out, and then we'll close. need help. I'm not looking for any help. and besides, there's nothing to help with. hey! you can't just climb into my boat. yeah you're right. Give me a helping hand. What do you think you're doing? We're going fishing. There are no fish out there this time of day. In fact, there are no fish out here any time of day. Peter. Just give me an hour, and I will give you a whole new life. Who says I want one? I'm telling you, there's no fish out there. How did this happen? What did you do? I'm giving you the chance to change your life. Peter, come with me. Give up catching fish and I will make you a fisher of men. What are we going to do? the world. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Jesus has come to offer you a new life, if you want one. I think that's a fair question they wrote into the story. I don't read it in the Bible, but I think many of Many of the people, you know, many of us, many people, we come in contact with and we say, hey, I have a new life to offer you through Jesus. Well, who says I want a new life? I like mine. If you want a new one, there's salvation available for you. It will change everything about you in the best way possible. I want to give you an opportunity to make that decision right now. Can we just pray together for a moment? If you're here today and, and you don't have a right relationship with Jesus, you've not been put right, you've not accepted salvation. Jesus wants to transform the way that you look at yourself, the way you with others, the relationship with God. It begins with you just accepting his invitation to come and follow him. And so it just begins with a simple prayer that you make. I can't make it for you. Me praying like I'm going to in a moment isn't enough in God's eyes for you to cement that decision. It's something you have to own personally, something you have to decide. And so that means you have to talk to God in this way. You have to make a confession to him of who you are, of who you're not, and of who he is and of what you want what you're looking to do. And so I'm going to give you an example of of the prayer that I prayed when I accepted salvation into my life. And you can make it your own this morning. But if you're here this morning, this is the invitation. If you want a new life, you want him to save you, this is your moment. You can just pray a simple prayer like, Jesus, please forgive me for living life my own way. I want the life you have to offer me. And so I choose to live mine behind. That means leaving my sin behind. Forgive me for my sins. Cover over my past. Jesus, I want you to touch me and bring me in where I've just been on the outside. I want to be in again. I invite you into the center of my life and the way that I live. Transform the way that I think, the way that I act, my instincts, my responses to things. And now I want to give up one kind of fishing for another kind of fishing. I want to be about this mission of changing the world. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but the biggest thing that you can do, God, is change me. That's the biggest miracle that there is. So I invite you at the center of who I am. And now, Lord Jesus, those of us in the room who have already made that decision, we invite you to let the message of the gospel sink another layer deep into the subterranean midst of who we are. Make us more like who Jesus already is, that we can be an accurate representative of the grace and the hope and the new life that there is through Jesus Christ. Lord, that we might be free from the tyranny of the urgent and be liberated to be involved in a new mission where we fish for people, where we are involved, actively involved in rescuing people from death and bringing them back to life. In order for that to happen, more of you needs to shine out of me and less of me needs to be on the forefront. All over this place, as we close, I would just invite you to stand. We're going to dismiss and just... Four or five minutes. But why don't you, every single person in this room, stand. Prayer team's coming. I invite you, if you've got something going on in your life you'd like prayer for, slip out of your seat right now. Come down to my right or to my left. Find any one of these prayer team members. They're people that we know and love and trust. You can share what's going on. They'll pray with you. They'll hold that in confidence. They'll stand with you and agree with you and encourage you. And we're going to watch God do some amazing things. But I want you to seal whatever it is you feel God's speaking to you this morning in this moment of worship. And then we're going to close and dismiss together. But just hold steady for just one moment. I just want you to let this sink in. Just another couple layers deep. Don't go out here the same way you came in today. Let God finish what he's starting in your heart this morning.